This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Right On, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to one and repeated the following Sunday at 11am. The university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop. Well, it's a bit of a wet and grotty day here in Dunedin today, so what better way to cosy up than listening in for an hour in that wonderful world of books? Now, my first guest today, Philip Temple, has been a, a bit of a regular on the Write On Radio Show talking about his books. He's a multifaceted writer having written fiction from the best-selling Beak of the Moon to novels about mountaineering, climate change, um, Berlin. He's written many non-fiction works as well, including biographies. And as a recognition for his work, he was given a Prime Minister's Award for Literary Achievement. Philip, welcome to the show. Hi. Now, today we're talking about your recently released second volume of Life is a Novel, a biography of Maurice Shadbolt, volume 2, 1973 to 2004. And to be honest, it doesn't feel that long ago that we were chatting about your first volume. (laughs) Yeah, well, volume one came out a couple of years ago, and um, we, we did it this way because it was a long haul, you know. It was the main focus of my work, not not entirely, but for seven years from the end of 2013. And uh, I'm getting on in years, and I was finding it a bit of a long haul. I needed a really bit of a break, and also to, uh, I think it helped to get in volume one out to see what the reaction was and whether I was on the right track. So I finally finished this um, round about October, November last year, and, uh, yep, it's just been published. Um, Morris, he seems to have been a bit forgotten, especially in the hurly-burly of modern um, books and um, emphasis on more sort of ethnic writing and that sort of thing, more diversity. But in fact, um, as I confirm for myself, if you like, um, he was one of the most popular New Zealand writers during the second half of the 20th century. And, you know, he was a bestseller... But he wrote on a whole variety of interesting topics because he was also a very accomplished journalist and non-fiction writer. Um, so it was really interesting for me to explore his life, taking it as it, as it came, as you know, as I, he came to different themed subjects or different books that he was writing, and come up with a uh, an overview, an assessment of uh, you know what he did. Yeah, because, you know, he was a very fascinating New Zealand writer and character in that literary scene. Um, so to, to give us a sense of, you know, where he stood, you, you know, you said he was a best-selling and favourite author, but, you know, amongst his literary community and things like that, was he high, a highly regarded author? Yes. Well, he, he didn't feel he was. I think <clears throat> there was always, there's always this tussle um, in the literary world between, if you like, the best-selling author and the, quote, literary writer. And um, 
the in academic circles, of course, they tend to focus on his bad writing or his overwriting and miss uh, what he was really doing and what he accomplished, uh, which was quite considerable because um, because he started life as a journalist um, he and also making uh, short films for the National Film Unit, he was aware of stories he he had a nose for what the story was what the latest story was so often his work would be picking up on something that was just kind of developing and he did significant work like with the whole Gallipoli story Mm. Uh, up until the time he was writing about it there was this kind of traditional view that it was a great sacrifice and a noble thing and the cause of the British Empire and all a bit sad but um, and he blew this apart with his uh, play Once on Chunuk Bear, <clears throat> uh, which, uh, about 1981, which really blew the whole thing apart and showed what a shambles it was, what a bloody shambles it was. And from that, and with other people like um, the military historian Chris Pugsley, who got involved with him, um, really reshaped our whole view of Gallipoli in the First World War. And he also is instrumental in making sure that there are these incredible video interviews with the last surviving veterans. Um, within a few years of this happening, um, they're all dead. <clears throat> mm. So there's that kind of thing. He also um, got involved with the famous Such case, the Bill Such case, uh, because he was, um, you know, Bill Such was. Um, Accused of spying, you know, for the Russians, KGB. <laughs> they would have been huge back in the day. It's yeah. like, oh my gosh, it's in New Zealand, um, we have a spy. So he was commissioned by Ian Cross, who was then editor of The Listener, to do a big story. It ended up at something like 15,000 words, the biggest story the this has ever run. And Morris attended every day of the trial and investigated it. Um, he also wrote uh, in depth about the Arthur Allen Thomas case and um, the Erebus disaster, this sort of thing. Then... Later on, um, in the 80s, he became really interested. He, he One of his mentors was uh, Pinay Tayapa, the great Maori carver, and his philosophy and uh, giving his art to his iwi and so on. And Morris saw himself often as a storyteller who was telling stories about his iwi, which he saw as all New Zealanders. But it, so he became really interested as there was this changing view of what had been called the Maori Wars in the mid 19th century, uh, just about the same time as Jamie Bellich, the um, history uh, lecturer and then professor, was writing these books about those wars. And, and, and the terminology slowly changed, of course, um, to land wars, I think, and I think currently it's New Zealand wars. So um, Morris actually looked at what Jamie Bellich was writing as well as uh, sort of tapping into his own sort of deep knowledge of New Zealand which had come about through writing things like The Shell Guide to New Zealand and that sort of thing Um, and wrote this trilogy of uh, New Zealand war novels and the first one which came out the end of the 80s um, was uh, really uh, caused quite a sensation and um, he followed this up, this was about Dakota and the campaigns in Hawke's Bay and um, he followed this up with two more and 
When I was looking at his writing, I felt that the best one was actually the middle one, Monday's Warriors, because he, his style for the first book was a bit arch, a little bit faux Victorian, and he settled down on that, but wrote this, what I think is a marvellous novel about Titikawaru, um, the great sort of Maori preacher slash warrior, who actually literally um, kept settlers out of South Taranaki for about a decade, and who was associated with um, Te Whiti, in, and they had a kind of wee republic there. And then that fell apart as money into the uh, equation, buying land and so on. And what and what Morris did was was show the the qualities of Titicaro's um, resistance through using um, a an American deserter from the uh, British forces as, as as his character. But really, Titicaro is the main character in Monday's Warriors. Mm-hmm. And people overlooked the fact that Titikawara was also at Parihaka and was arrested and so on. And um, But people don't like... Uh, Pakeha in particular, uh, up until now anyway, don't like writing about Titikawara because he actually beat them and, and was fairly, you know, a bloodthirsty warrior, whereas Tuiti is sort of this great angel, this Christ-like figure. Anyway, so Morris then followed up with um, um, a novel about the... The wars uh, in 1845 up north, which I don't think is particularly good. But um, <clears throat> but what he did with the first novel, Season of the Jew, Monday's Warriors, uh, and the third novel was to really uh, establish a popular mm. benchmark about how to look at what had been going on. And um, so in many ways he was always a bit ahead of the game. Mm. And he always saw himself as a storyteller, um, which he was, and um, he, but at the same time, of course, he he wanted to be taken seriously as well by academia, and he he sort of partly was in the end, uh, but um, I think partly because of his popularity, but also because of his um, increasingly notorious private life, he tended to be uh, downgraded, and um, it just. You know, in recent years, um, he's not been very prominent. But I think um, there will come a time when people look back and pick out one or two of his novels and say, these are really important. Mm. See, that was one of the things that struck me um, in reading the first volume of his life and then looking through the second one was that, um, you know, his careers did intertwine so much, you know, with the journalism and then, as you say, that informing some of his storytelling. So he really was uh, quite ahead of his time. As a yeah, writer, yes, I. I mean, I actually knew him, um, not closely because I didn't live up in Auckland. Uh, but um, I was with him on a, a number of occasions, uh, either up um, at his home in uh, Titirangi, or uh, when he came down and stayed when I was living on Banks Peninsula, and so I got to know him quite well, and um, <clears throat> so. For me, it was partly um, not exactly autobiographical, this project, but it was in a professional way because I knew him, I knew his work, and although he was, what, seven years older than me, um, I was in that particular kind of writing world. So it was very interesting for me to go back over that and to look into certain issues. 
like the famous Bloomsbury flat issue, uh, to uh, analyse what really happened at the time. And in no way was I trying to whitewash him, um, but I wanted to get a balance. And what I'd read, I think probably a lot of his books before he died, I hadn't read them all. So it was interesting uh, going through them stage by stage. And also coming up with the conclusion about what I thought was the best novel he wrote, uh, he wrote which I think was the Lovelock version, mm. which he's kind of um, sometimes um, uh, prolix writing style and um, loose writing style didn't matter at all with that because this is what it was all about. Yeah. It was about this, what, what, this kind of alternative history of New Zealand and it drew on all the knowledge that he gained for his other projects and books and he, he just, I don't think he, he would have done that much research for that. He just sort of poured it all in and made it all up. And people saw it. Um, I think Bill Oliver, who was the original editor of the Dictionary Museum Biography, when he reviewed it, said, this is actually a bit more serious than we think. This is uh, an alternative history of New Zealand, which might have been a better way to have gone. <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah. one of the things you know, that I was going to ask you is having, um, being someone who knew him and was of that era, how do you approach um, writing a biography like that through your lens of being part of it and but also trying to be ob- objective about providing a, a truth? Yeah, it's tricky. Um, I, it's, it's a bit of a cliched image, but... Um, the the, bio, the two books, which amount to about the equivalent of other big single volume biographies of New Zealand writers, um, is really just the top of the iceberg. There's a vast amount of information underneath. My personal knowledge of what was going on with him, um, both professionally and personally, um, but also when I've talked to people, and of course I've read all these letters, and um, I had to... So all of this research and knowledge um, gave me two things, I think, uh, a level of authenticity as to who he was and how he wrote and so on, but also a, bal- a kind of balance so that w- without pulling any punches about his behaviour you know, towards women, um, the... He wasn't entirely to blame. I mean, it has to be two people involved. Uh, Even even if they do get in, he does treat them badly in the end. It was interesting for me that um, of the... I mean, he had four wives and um, and two significant um, girlfriends, if you like. And it was interesting to me that um, when he was interred in the Waikamuti Cemetery in Auckland... There were um, two wives and two uh, of his long-term um, girlfriends at the graveside, and they went there on sufferance. They were there because they loved him. Mm. So it's sort of, um, it, you know, he, he came of an era where, uh, you know, like I had to the fifties and sixties, where uh, the great writer was a was the artist's hero. You know uh, that, uh, and there's this entitlement sense that um, you know I've got this big reputation, and women were attracted to him because of this, and he took advantage of it. And um, but also he, 
I think so, he, he definitely suffered from severe depression. People, I don't, I didn't fully understand this actually until I started to read letters and um, reports and things like that. And I realised that he it really was a big problem all his life. And um, of course, the reaction often of people in depression is booze, and that um, it became worse and worse. And then he got dementia, and um, his mother got dementia and died when she was about 70. And I remember him saying to me at the time, he was actually really terrified mm. that he was going to go that way as well. But, it, but he almost kind of willed it, if you like. Um, <clears throat> and um, didn't help matters by continuing to drink with, with dr- taking drugs as well. Not, not bad drugs, I mean uh, anti-dementia drugs. And so he had a pretty rapid decline from the age of um, about 66 onwards. Which is so young. Yes, Mm. but it does happen, of course, Mm. even, you know, people do get early-onset dementia. Having to deal with that, how I was going to write about that was quite tricky. Mm. I was asked by another person who's writing another biography um, about a prominent New Zealander who also actually still alive but with dementia, how was I handling this? And I said, I don't know, actually, until I get to it. Um, So I had... Some good cooperation from um, one or two of the children, which helped me to frame the final sort of chapters. And but I didn't feel as much point going on and on about it. I mean, except to um, tell the story of what it was really like. You know, I mean, you could go on and on with these things, but that was—I didn't feel it was necessary. So that must be, listening to what you've been saying about all these different facets of his life and um, the relationships and the fraught, sometimes interesting relationships, how did you approach the research and talking to people about this? Well, I interviewed quite a lot of people, mainly um, his children and the women in his life. And I realised that... I couldn't, it was not going to be possible to interview each of these people at great depth on and on and on. Um, and then that was the end of it. I decided almost every case of the people I interviewed, except maybe his eldest son, um, I talked to people for about an hour with a whole set of questions. And then after that, stayed in touch with them so that when I came to the relevant part of the book, I would listen to what they'd said or I had them all transcribed and um, had been reading other things and you know letters and so on at the same time and then when I got to that point I would think right I need to know more about this this and this so I then email them you know I mean this is a great thing about <coughs> the in- internet <coughs> we've got email and you can actually instantly communicate with people and where well, you know did you find people um Forthright, or you know, did you feel that they were holding back, or were people ready to talk? Oh, it varied immensely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the a couple of the children were uh, very open. A couple were very rather guarded. Um, when it came to the women in his life, um, again. Um, one or two were very open, or two or three actually, 
there was one person in particular who, who refused to talk at all, only one, um, and I think when people read the book they'll work out who that was. <clears throat> um, others were very, uh, a bit cagey about what I was going to say, and um, so I had to bear all of this in mind because, apart from <laughs> risk of defamation, <laughs> um, I had to balance this up and think, well, this, is actually, this book is actually about Morris mm. and um, not necessarily about this person. And so it was more to do with how does this person fit with uh, what Morris was doing and how he behaved towards them, of course, but it's not their story. Mm. And uh, in one or two cases, uh, um, they've told their stories anyway. <laughs> now, this has been um, an immense piece of work for you. How much has it consumed your life? Oh, too much, really. Um, I, given what's generally happening in the world with <laughs> COVID-19, climate change and goodness knows what, um, I began to think um, I really should be focusing on <laughs> these more urgent matters, but... I, I, I continued with it because, as I mentioned before, it was a way of my looking back at writing and events during the second half of the last century, and you know some of which I was involved with. And um, apart from, of course, a lot of the other writers involved, I knew really well also. And uh, people like Kevin Ireland, who Morris introduced me to him um, about... 40-odd years ago when Kevin was still living in London. And I've been in touch with Kevin ever since. And he's been very, very helpful. In, he was a friend of Morris from the age of about 18 or 19. So he was able to offer all kinds of information and insights which were very helpful. And I think I've got an um, epigraph from one of Kevin's poems at the beginning which maybe I should read, actually, because it kind of sums up mm. a lot of the um, difficulty of whose truth is involved. And it comes from a poem that Kevin wrote called Old Troopers for Morris Shadbolt. I had no recollection of the time of which you spoke, the place, the people, or the action. Yet you insisted I was present, endowing a forgotten self with flesh and mind and temperament. Then I responded with a version of events you could not trace, retrieving you from your oblivion. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so so this, this was the, the thing. Who's, whose truth mm. was there? There was Morris's truth. I mean, I had these journals he kept in which he did write a lot of personal things and which nobody else had seen until or read since I got hold of them. <clears throat> and I thought, OK, but... You know, people who write diaries, they're self-justifying. <laughs> so I, I just looked at this with, with, with information from interviews and lots of letters and, what, and the times he was in and tried to arrive at what I think is a reasonable truth. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Look, thank you so much, Philip, for coming and talking on the show and talking about Life as a Novel, a biography of Morris Shadbolt, Volume 2, because you know, it does seem to be a really important work to have out there um, about this man. So well done. Thanks, Vanda. Right, we're going to take a short music break. We'll be back soon. Here's someone now who's got the muscle 
university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers' Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Welcome back. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop, which kind of happens to be my home away from home. Well, this week I caught up with Kakanui writer Linda Collins about her um, book, Loss Adjustment. Now, Loss Adjustment is about her daughter's death by suicide, so some listeners may find this difficult. So at the conclusion of the interview, I'll be giving some context for you if you do need to talk with someone. Linda Collins is a New Zealand journalist currently living in Kakanui and she and her husband Malcolm have experienced every parent's worth nightmare, the death of their daughter, only 17, by suicide. Now, Linda has written a book about the loss of their daughter Victoria, Loss Adjustment. Linda, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Linda. It's a pleasure to be on this and to talk to you. Well, firstly, you know, I want to acknowledge Victoria and say, you know, I am so sorry for your loss. And I also want to say, I found in reading Loss Adjustment, I found it a, a powerful, very human and beautiful book. And thank you for writing it. Oh, thank you for saying that. Um, it's, it's, uh, I think it's got an aspect of poetry to it, yeah. Now, one of the debates, of course, around death by suicide is how much should we be talking about this openly? So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's interesting you mention this because um, I had an op-ed and spin-off about it in response to um, to a op-ed piece by the Ministry of Health Suicide Prevention Officer, Carla Nanagara, who, who um, in an interesting op-ed, worried about the effects of opening up the conversation and whether it was a wise thing and cited um, in the fictional TV series 13 Ways, I forget the rest of the title. And um, so I responded to that because because there's a huge difference between the effect of, um, of a fictionalised account of suicide and the telling of lived experience of the reality. And I found in Singapore, where I was based, that uh, and where suicide in, in Asian societies considered an absolute taboo and very, very shameful. But um, first of all, talking about it with a group of other mothers who'd lost their children this way um, provided a springboard to opening up the conversation further. And we, we found such um, relief in talking about our, our kids uh, in terms of honouring their memory, but also looking at the factors that caused it. We realised that we didn't want other children, other people, anyone to die this way, because sometimes it's such a meanness death if there was the right intervention. So we started talking about it a lot. We set up a website, we set up um, the Please Stay movement, and um, we then started to share our lived experience with policymakers such as we visited the Ministry of Education uh, Deputy Director. We went to one of the leading charities, Tomasic Cares. We went to the National Council of Social Services. Um, 
this really jolted people were to to relook and to realise what an urgent matter suicide prevention was. So I could see in Singapore that this had had a result. And a few months later, um, committing suicide was removed from the statute books as a crime, um, or attempting to, to uh, commit suicide rather. So, so I thought in New Zealand, you know, why do you want to shut down the conversation? So. So the danger is when you start comparing with fictionalized um, accounts is that um, that tends to glamorize suicide. Young kids get the wrong idea, you know, how susceptible they are to... And also, the, the, uh, when it's portrayed that way, it doesn't seem quite real. The actual death, the repercussions, the complex grief, the forever grief. Mm. So and, the lived yeah, that, experience that, was very, very important, and that was the key element here for you. Exactly, so when did you realise, in amongst all the turmoil of your life, which was um, Victoria dying, but also the effects of the Christchurch earthquakes on your family, and you know you had a hell of a time, when did you realise you needed to write a book about your journey? Well, that's the kind of um, weird thing. I never intended to write a book. So in Singapore, I'm a copy editor, sort of like a sub-editor, but not in that I'm a person given the stuff to rewrite and improve quickly. Um, so as a rewrite person and understanding audiences needs. And that was my life. And um, I looked at a different career because I didn't feel was adding value to society. You know, I wanted to, to have some sense of purpose after Victoria died. So I looked at counselling. I did a diploma in learning disorders management. I looked at teaching and realized I would be a hopeless teacher. <laughs> you know, far too kind and, and easily duped. You know? And um, uh, I was wondering what to do with my life. And at that time, I was revisiting Catholicism uh, because my life was pretty much a spiritual void uh, for a long time. And I was doing a retreat, a residential retreat, with a bunch of other Singaporean women. Involved a lot of prayer and reflection and reading about uh, oneself in the universe. And about halfway through, Victoria's voice, or perhaps her voice, I imagined her voice or something, came to me with a very prosaic instruction. Mom, Google Creative Writing New Zealand. And uh, so I did. This was um, about November 2016. And um, up popped the International Institute of Modern Letters at Victoria University, the old Bill Manhire course. And um, uh, I thought, oh, well, perhaps I'll apply. I don't really know what they want. But I did. And I got a response, more or less straight away. It's uncanny you're applying now, because applications are closed, but we're just considering people. So if you send us 5,000 words by tomorrow, we'll consider your application. <laughs> Did you have 5,000 words? <laughs> no, I have one word. So I sat at that computer and I said, Vic, come on, help me out here. And the words just came. And now those 5,000 words make up the first part of the book, virtually unchanged. So you, you undertook... Um writing this book then as part of your MA in Creative Writing at Institute of Modern Letters. How is it important was the support and structure then that you got there for this? Because it must have been quite a harrowing experience, really, reliving it in a book. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to, 
to honour my daughter, who, who was a good writer herself, even at 17. Um, but also, it was like a, a key had been turned in myself, in that I went down, I felt so happy, and I felt supercharged by the fellow students and the whole environment, and um, I, I, uh, I wanted to make, to make my work the best it could be. So... Uh, my tutor, Chris Price, gave me a terrific reading list of memoir, and I, I, which I devoured, and saw how to tell these stories in a contemporary way. That um, these days, there's a lot of intersection between um, fact and the use of fictional techniques in telling a story that is nevertheless a true account. So th- that was, you know, intellectually interesting to me, and I, I um, had to make quite firm strategic decisions about the structure of my book and you know, tense, characterization, all that sort of thing. And I was with, in my class, there were seven poets and three non-fiction writers, and the, the poets who included Kay Tibble and Sam Ducker-Jones, Sarah Scott, SMA Ranapari, um, they were incredibly stimulating and talented people who gave of themselves they were they were really inspiring. So I think I was so lucky to do that course and the effect it had on my book. And you know, what did you have to consider in how you approached writing this book? You know, about something that was so exquisitely personal and painful, and knowing what your potential audience may be. Well, I knew immediately I had to strip it of all sentimentality. Uh, and also to try and keep myself out of it as much as possible to have Victoria at the foreground, which is quite hard writing a memoir basically about yourself. Um, <laughs> and, but uh, there were there were ways to do this. Um, and also, uh, I knew that it wouldn't be a cathartic or healing process if I, if I was if I was to succeed. I took to heart Janet Fain's quote that um, to write well one must be in the moment. So um, I got a whole lot of photos printed off of my daughter's wake and um, the, the funeral and um, put them around my student room where I was living in Wellington. And so I basically re-traumatized myself. So while I was enjoying the creative environment, the actual writing process kind of nearly destroyed me. <laughs> Yes. And you mentioned, you know, you do have the background as a, a journalist and a copywriter. Um, how did you find, you know, that as part of that in your professional life, you know, critical thought, analytical thought and questioning is part and parcel with what you do. Did that help or hinder you when it actually came to trying to get this story down? It was a tremendous hindrance. Um, so for decades I've worked in the news media that way. So you, it's very formulaic. So my whole brain and writing mindset was focused on the narrative, conventional narrative. And you know, newspaper medium is very unsatisfactory. You have to kind of spin things. Tr- truths are left out, essential truths sometimes, um, for the sake of the deadline or for the sake of what one's superior editors want. And um, if you, with my memoir, I wanted to be as authentic as I could. So I knew I had to disregard fight against the, the urge to write a sort of traditional narrative. Now, one of the 
stunning and to me really precious things about this book is Victoria's writing in there. Here you have excerpts from her diaries, oh. and you know she for seventeen. She was an incredible writer. So how have you used her own words to help others? Oh, that's a, a lovely question. Thanks, and thanks for your comments about Victoria. Um, so uh, during my year at IOML, I had brought along my daughter's diaries um, because I was struck by them and I, I, you know, a lot of teens write diaries, right? And it could have just been that. So a mother wonders, oh, is it just me deluded believing this about my wonderful kid, you know? <laughs> or is there some truth? Is this actually really, really good? I don't know. I don't know. And um, so I mentioned it to my classmates and I was very fortunate that one of the classmates is, was um, Dr. Rebecca Priestley, a science communication writer who's um, had many books out, including, I think her latest is 30 million years in Antarctica, or is mm. it 15 million? And um, so Re- Rebecca immediately saw the potential of this, and she said, I think I know someone who might who might be interested. And she linked me up with uh, Dr. Jesse Bering, who's head of science communication at Otago University. And he ended up devoting a whole chapter to Victoria and her her journal writing in his book Suicidal Why We Kill Ourselves which is published by University of Chicago Press so um, so those words got out and then <clears throat> and then that book was widely reviewed and to my absolute delight in The Guardian and The New Yorker um, Victoria's chapter was singled out and the New Yorker hailed Victoria as a writer in her own right with important narratives to tell us so that must have been just so special for you and uplifting in a way through all this. Yeah, I, I really felt I think Victoria you would you you feel you would feel just so honoured and recognised. Mm. I think recognition was what she wanted because at school, you know, with its uni- with its focus on exams and she had difficulty paying attention, focusing for a long period of time and, and exams made her extremely anxious. So she wasn't doing very well in her English exams. And it was so frustrating for her. And it's only after her death and reading her writing that I realized how frustrating it was because she had this talent. And yet in the school system, she was regarded as an average student. Mm. Now, now, Victoria kept diaries. And you mentioned also that you kept a diary um, throughout. So how did keeping a record of your feelings and what was happening in your days help you? Um, well, I started it. I started writing um, just spontaneously after Victoria died. Mostly it was at first to make notes of all the police investigations and what people wanted or not and then what we needed to find out from the school, the result of that. And then it just became a way of, of, of reflection, of self-reflection, of getting some distance on it. And I, I've written about 200,000 words. I, I pick it up or call it up on my laptop and read now back several years as the years, unfortunately, keep passing. And, um, and I see a, a person evolving and changing and lessons learnt in that. You know, I don't want it to sound macabre, but in her death, Victoria did give me a gift, the gift to be able to take a hard look at myself and to try and become a a better person. I know that may sound glib, 
I'm sure everyone knows what I mean. Yes, they will. And you, you've written Loss Adjustment, which is an honest and open and challenging account of Victoria's death and the aftermath and its self-examination of you and her lives. And you've put this book out into the world. Um, what sort of feedback have you had from readers and, and how do you actually cope with feedback? Well, it was first published in Singapore by Ethos Books in September 2019. So Ethos have a trick record of social justice uh, titles. And so I was, I was really lucky they, they chose to publish the book. And um, it was a non-fiction bestseller in Singapore. So I was really excited and honoured by that. And uh, the you know, reactions to it were just amazing. Um, so it was shortlisted for Book of the Year. But it was the readers, the readers who kept contacting me, tracing me through social media, whatever way they could, to say thank you or to share their own experiences. And um, at sign book signings, you know, people would, queue to talk to me and it became a bit overwhelming because often they would tell me a secret <laughs> that had been eating away at them for a lot of their life and I, at first I thought well, maybe I should help these people what should I do and I found it quite stressful so I talked to a psychologist who sat in on some of these findings and gave me a, a script she explained that just by listening I was helping people listening to people say their the thing that's been unspeakable for them until then, because yeah, I, I imagine that could all, that could feel like an additional burden on top of what everything else that you've had to deal with. Yes, it, it has been, and it's in New Zealand too. I get um, strangers contacting me mostly on Messenger to to share. One shared a photo of a kingfisher, which is a motif in the book, which <laughs> I just loved. You know, yeah. uh, other someone else shared a picture of the book on a shelf at Unity. University Bookshop Dunedin and I, I thought because it had just arrived there some readers sent me a photo of the book on the shelf there I thought they understand yeah. what that meant to me but also the awfulness of it was it was right next to uh, a Judith Collins book because we've both got the same surname and so I thought maybe my title Loss Adjustment was more suited for her book you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the, the readers some of them have been stressed when they've messaged me and they're actually really seeking more or less immediate help. So I've talked with the um, Mental Health Foundation and they've given me uh, uh, something to cut and paste of a of what to do, ranging from what what numbers to contact to immediate measures you can take to calm down or, or get some distance. So, so there, there has been that. That has weighed on me. And also... So many people in New Zealand and Singapore messaging me to say, uh, I want to write a memoir. Please tell me the 10 tips of writing a best-selling book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you get that? You get that? Uh, now, um, poetry is also a form of writing that you shared a, a love of writing along with Victoria. And you have a collection of poems coming out soon called Sign Language for the Death of Reason. How has expressing your thoughts and feelings through poetry helped you? Uh, well, Bukowski said something like, um, po poetry is the medium for when all other words fail. And um, so there, there were things I wanted to explore through poetry. Now, when I did my MA 
at um, IIML, I, I hadn't read much poetry at all. It was only being amongst those poets that I realised the power of, of this. And um, so in the last, since finishing Loss Adjustment and um, getting it out to the publishers, which first happened in early 2018, I found myself into studying poetry. I had to start from ground zero. I really, really didn't know about meter or rhythm or c- contemporary or past trends. So I've, I've just, every week, week in, week out for years, these past years, writing poems, failing, working out where they're going wrong, and, and you know, sometimes going to spoken word events because saying saying the words out loud, you can hear what works and not works. And I, then I started to work with a couple of um, poets, including Michael Montlack, who's a New York queer poet, and he helped me with this collection in terms of giving me prompts of of showing me what was working or not working and getting a, a narrative art going, which I, I needed for that. Um, and also playing with concepts of I, the I persona and the Victoria persona and, and what that means today, how how slippery that, that idea of persona and poetry is. So I think I was also looking at a way of, of, of writing that some people with all the best will in the world world can't read loss adjustment because it's either too close to home so just never going to be in the mood for the subject matter but they still want to know and they're still curious and they still want some access to what I'm going through for whatever reason so poetry has provided a way for those people as well if they want to read my book Um, so yeah it's been an interesting process and now I'm doing a new MA in creative writing in poetry at the University of East Anglia. Fantastic. Look, thank you so much, Linda, for coming and talking with us today about loss adjustment and Victoria and your writing. And, you know, I found it is a very special and powerful book. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity to, to speak. If this program has raised issues and made you worry about your or someone else's mental health, here are some ways to get help. The best person to talk to is your GP or local mental health provider. However, if you or someone else is in danger or endangering others, call 111. If you need to talk to someone, the following free helplines operate 24-7. 1737 need to talk? Call or text 1737. Lifeline 0800 543 354 Youthline 0800 3766 33 or text 234 between 8am or midnight. Depression Helpline 0800 111 757 Samaritans 0800 726666 Well that is our show for this month. Thanks for listening in today and thank you to my guest Philip Temple who was talking about his book Life is a Novel, a Biography of Morris Shadbolt Volume 2 and Linda Collins and her book Loss Adjustment. Join me again next month for another hour in the wonderful world of books but until then enjoy plenty of great reading. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner. 
the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.